My name is Danny Evans, and I'm one of the pastors here at Windsor Community Church. And I have a list of these things that I downloaded off the Wikipedia website for comfort. There is comfort in. You guys maybe have stayed there. There are select comfort beds. You may sleep on one of those. There is, of course, comfort fabric softener and comfort air, which actually is in airlines in Germany. There's, of course, comfort food, right? Chocolate is one of my favorite comfort foods, or ice cream. There is comfort noise, which is an artificial background noise. There is actually a comfort object, which is an object used to provide psychological comfort. There is a comfort zone. There is thermal comfort, which is a field of specialization in building indoor environments. There is something called the Toyota Comfort, which is a taxi cab used in Japan and Hong Kong. And then there is the all-familiar Southern Comfort we know of from the South. Now this is the comfort that the world offers. Today we're going to look at comfort that God offers. And it's a comfort that is not temporary. It's a comfort that does not cost you anything. Yet it is a comfort that is available to you every time you cry out to God when you're going through trials in your life. Well, last week I talked about the reasons why bad things happen to us as believers. The reasons why we go through trials. And it wasn't really a feel-good message. Because the reason why is that God tests us. He puts us through a testing, and He tests our obedience, and He tests our faith, and He tests our love for Him. And another reason why we go through tough times is that God really wants to wean us from this earth and point us to heaven. Just like a baby needs to be weaned from his mother's milk, so do we need to be weaned away from the pleasures of this world. We need to get to the point in our life where we're like Paul, where we are able to say, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or also Paul said this, he said, I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. See, we are aliens on this planet. We are just visitors here. Our home is in heaven. Paul also said in Romans that, He knows that God works all things for good for those who love Him. So, God is working in your life right now. And He's working all things for good. Though it doesn't look good, though losing your job or going through financial difficulties or having wayward children or going through difficult illnesses may not look good in your eyes. God is working those things together for good. And we saw that in 9-11. That though they intended it for evil, God meant it for good. And even a tough, tragic event like that, God used it to bring people to himself. Well, today we're going to start in 2 Corinthians. This is the second letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. And these first 11 verses that we're going to look at today are really near and dear to Sue and my my wife and my heart. And we've gone to these often over these last 10 years after the loss of our child. These first 11 verses are all about comfort. And they're not about the earthly comfort that I talked about that you get from the media and you get from products and you get from pills. No, they're about godly comfort that only comes from God. So to paint some context and help us to get into this letter, 
Last week I talked about really how it came about, the second letter to the church in Corinth. And so Paul started this church in Corinth, which was a very immoral city, a very worldly city. And he started this church, and he was there about 18 months. And then after his departure, he heard about these men that came into the church, and they started teaching lies, and they started attacking Paul's credibility. And they started attacking Paul's claim of being an apostle. And so Paul had to make what is called the painful visit, as we'll see in this letter, to Corinth, where he openly attacked these false apostles. But he was extremely hurt when he found out the result, that this body did not come alongside him. They did not defend him. And so he went, left away from Corinth, dejected. And he probably went over to Ephesus, as we know, and he wrote what is now called the severe letter, which we don't actually have, but is referred to here in 2 Corinthians. And for some time after writing this severe letter back to the church, he went through some of the lowest points in his ministry. Yet following this time, he got word from Titus that the church had actually repented. They repented of their allegiance to these false Apostles, and they now put their allegiance back to Christ. Following all these events, Paul then writes this letter called the second letter to the church in Corinth. So if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians, the second letter of Paul to the church in Corinth. And look at verse 1. It says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy our brother, to the church of God which is in Corinth with all the saints, who are throughout Acacia. See, Paul was not an apostle by his own choosing. Paul was not an apostle because it's just a cool title. Paul is not an apostle because it made him famous or it gave him some kind of clout to start all these new churches. No, Paul was an apostle. Why? By the will of God. See, Paul used to be a guy named Saul. And he ran around hell-bent to kill Christians. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he went throughout the world trying to destroy what he thought was a cult, which was against the true religion that he thought was Judaism. But God had different plans for Saul. And he met Saul on the road to Damascus. And he changed him from being a persecutor and a killer of Christians to being an apostle. This word apostle here means one who is sent or messenger. And so Paul was sent out into the world to share the gospel. And that's how he got the title apostle. And on in this salutation in verse 2 it says, Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. See, Paul uses this quite a few times in a lot of his letters. Grace, peace, comfort. What great words of encouragement, eh? Last week we talked about the toughness of trials and the testing that God puts us through in trials. This week will be a great message of encouragement. And it really has encouraged my heart for many years, and I hope it encourages your heart that God is a God of comfort. And that while we go through trials, He will come alongside us and comfort us. So let's pray. Lord God, I pray that You would teach us through Your Word today, You, the God of all comforts, the Father of mercies, would pour down your mercy and your grace and your peace upon us today, that we would feel the amazing power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. We would be buoyed up and strengthened up by your comfort 
and your strength. Lord, we know the world has troubles. We go through them every day. We go through the trials of life. And it just seems like sometimes it's not worth it. But God, you are holy and you are in control. And you know every single thing that's happening to us. And you are there lovingly with your hand upon us, just reaching out to us, asking, Come to me. Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you comfort. Come to me, and I will bless you because of who I am and who you are in Christ. So, Lord, I pray that you'd bless this service, that if there's any people here that are in trials, they seem there's no way out, that you would show them the deliverance that you provide that you provide an amazing source of comfort and strength in time of need. And you are near to us. And I just thank you for that, that your character never changes. It's the same yesterday, today, and always. Amen. All right, the main theme to this whole epistle, or this whole letter really, is Paul's defense of his apostleship and so we see in these first 11 verses we see paul really defending himself against the false charge that his trials were because god was punishing him for some type of disobedience now as we saw last week that god does use trials in our life he does use hard times in our life as a form of discipline but like paul if we're discerning if we are close to god We can discern whether this is a form of punishment or whether this is another thing. Maybe it's a test of our faith. Or for Paul, it actually was so he could reveal God's comfort to the church. So he could reveal that God is a God of comfort and he comforts us through trials and difficulties of our life. And so that's what Paul is talking about in these first 11 verses is that God comforts him through his trials. And so today we're going to look at three different questions that center around the topic of comfort. And we're going to answer these questions. In verse 3, we're going to answer who or what is our source of comfort. Where does our comfort come from? And then verses 4 and then on to 8 through 11, we're going to look at when comfort comes. At what time will comfort come? And then we'll finish up by answering this question. After we've been comforted, how are we as believers to respond? To that comfort. So the first thing, before we even get into these questions, I want to paint a context of Paul's life. So we can understand the kind of trials and tribulations that Paul is referring to numerous times in this letter. And he gives it in full detail in chapter 11 of 2 Corinthians. So if you want to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and I'm going to start reading in verse 23 and, and go through about verse 27. Verse 23, it says, I have labored, or I've worked much harder and been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. See, five times I received from the Jews the 40 minus 1. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled. 
I have gone, often gone without sleep, and I have known hunger and thirst and have gone without food. I've been cold and naked, and besides everything else, I face daily the pressure of my concern for all the churches. Paul knew suffering and trials. And I hope this kind of gives you and paints you a picture of the lifestyle that Paul went through being an apostle. So the first question we're going to ask is, what is our source of comfort? Where does it come from? And that starts here in verse 3. Look at verse 3 now. Turn back to chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. See, Paul starts off this letter with praise. He couldn't start off by bragging about his own circumstances, right? He was going through a world of hurt. His life was rough. He starts off by praising God. And this word here, blessed, really means to speak well of. So he couldn't speak well of his own circumstances, so Paul spoke well of God. And Paul starts off by praising God first by saying that he is the father of mercies. And this is a phrase used numerous times in the Old Testament, especially in the Psalms. Psalm 5 and 51 and 103 and 109. And in Micah chapter 7 verse 19 it says this, he says, He, the father of mercies, will again have compassion on us. He will tread our iniquities underfoot. Yes, he, the Father of mercies, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. And the next characteristic he mentions about God is that he is the God of all comfort. And this is a theme we see throughout Isaiah. In Isaiah chapter 40 and 49 and 51 and 52. And in Isaiah 66, he says this in verse 13. As one whom his mother comforts, so I, the God of all comfort, will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. And this word here, comfort, is repeated ten times in these first eleven verses. So I think he really wants to get it home, doesn't he? That he's the God of comfort. In fact, this is really the theme we'll see overarching the first seven chapters of Second Corinthians. Now the English word here for comfort comes from two Latin words. The first word is con, and the second word is fort. And the first word con really just means with. And the second word fort comes from the word fortissimos, which means strength. So the word here really means with strength. Comfort really means with strength. And so this comfort, though, we can't translate it as being as sympathy. Because sympathy really would weaken us and not strengthen us, right? God does not want to pat on our head and just give us a piece of candy and make us feel sorry for him. That's, that's what I do with my two-year-old, you know. She gets an owie on her hand or something. I'll just stick a sucker in her mouth and, oh, it's all better. You know, I covered it up. Sucker did roll the grate. Well, that didn't really strengthen or help her out. It just distracted her, right, from her hand or whatever was hurting. God doesn't do that with us. God strengthens us. During our trials, he comes alongside us and strengthens us. And this word comfort comes from the Greek word periklesis, which comes also from the word paraclete, which Jesus uses in John chapter 16 to refer to the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is our helper or our comforter. It is that which comes alongside us while we're feeling down, when we're feeling low, and it comes alongside us and it strengthens us and it buoys us up to get through these tough trials of life and point us to God. So the answer to the first question is, who provides that comfort? 
Well, we know it's God. God, the God of all comfort through the power of His Holy Spirit, the Helper comes and comforts us and buoys us up and gives us strength. So the next question is when? When do we get this comfort? Let's look at verse 4. The beginning of verse 4 says, The God of all comfort who comforts us in some of our affliction? No, in all of our affliction. So comfort comes in any and all of our troubles and afflictions or trials. Now this word affliction here really means pressure. And Paul uses five different Greek words in this letter to describe the suffering and the trials and the pain that he went through. He really wanted the church to be informed of the suffering that it is to be in a follower of Christ. He wanted them to be informed of that. Let's jump down to verse 8. It really kind of emphasizes that. Verse 8 says, For we do not want you to be unaware or uninformed, brethren, of our affliction which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. See, Paul's trials were so serious that he and his friends, probably Timothy and Titus and maybe Achilla and Priscilla and those that were around him, they despaired of their life in the province of Asia. Now this verse refers to hardships that happened in the province of Asia and it's most likely probably what happened to him in Ephesus because we know of the stories of him in Ephesus that he did fear for his life, that he despaired of his own life. And in 1 Corinthians, the end of the book in, in chapter 16, verse 9, he refers to this serious hardship in this way. He says, because I went through this serious hardship... A wide door of effective service has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. So possibly one of these adversaries, we think, maybe even wanted to take his own life and take the lives of him and his friends. And that's why he despaired of life and feared his own life. But what an interesting perspective, huh? A wide door of effective service has opened for me? Doesn't that seem strange to you? I mean, if you went out on a mission trip and you went somewhere and people wanted to kill you, do you think you'd hang around? I know I wouldn't. I would not want to hang around. If I feared for my life, I'd be like, I don't think God wants me to be here. I'm going to get out of here. But that's not Paul. That's not his heart for the service. He said, man, we feared for life, but God opened a wide open door of service for us. And this just makes me think about the movie, End of the Spear. Have you guys seen that movie, End of the Spear, or read the book? You probably know about the Elliott family and the Saint family who went into South America to reach this untouched people group. And they went in there to reach them, and what happened? The men went in, and what happened to them? They got killed, you know? I think most wives that see their husbands getting killed, they would bail. They'd be like, well, that's done. We're, we're out of here. The husbands got killed. Let's just bail on this. I mean, God obviously doesn't want us here. Is that what they did? <laughs> no. No, they went in. They went into this people group because they knew God wanted them to be there. That hardship and trial they went through did. It set up a wide open door for effective service. And they were able to come into that time and share the gospel with these people that were never reached before. And now there are people that are saved there and there's a church in this remote jungle of the Amazon in South America because of these hardships and trials they went through. 
You see that uh, though Paul despaired of life even to the point of thinking that he could possibly be killed, he did not rely on himself. No, he relied on God. And that's seen in verse 9. Look at verse 9 with me. Verse 9 says, Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves but in God who raises the dead. See, Paul and his friends didn't paint the victim picture. They didn't go, woe is me, we're about to die and feel sorry for ourselves. Or they didn't go into these trials and go, well, let's just think positively about this and things will get better. No. He relied on God. He trusted in God. They trusted in God because they knew that God had the power to even raise the dead. You may have heard of the famous quote, there are no atheists in foxholes. It was a term brandished, they think, probably in the Second World War. And it really refers to just those men that were in the war, in the foxholes, that they despaired of life. When they're up against the wall and their life is in danger, that even the most ardent non-believers will cry out to God. and go, God, there, there's no way I can get out of this. I mean, in my own human strength, there's no way I can get out of this situation. There's no way no one else humanly can help me. And so this is a time to rely on God and turn to God. Well, September 4th, 2005, if you watch the Good Morning America television show, the co-host Bill Ware made this statement following the hurricanes at Hurricane Katrina. He said, there are no atheists in foxholes or hurricane zones. Well, someone didn't like that statement. They're called the American Atheists. And so they went out against this, and they asked Mr. Ware and ABC to retract this statement. And he did. He retracted it. And though Mr. Ware and ABC retracted that statement, it is true. This is a true statement. And once your back is against the wall, and there's no one else to turn to, you rely on God. He's the only one that has the power to get you out of those kind of situations. Let's look at verse 10 next. Verse 10 talks about deliverance and who will deliver us from these trials. Verse 10 says, Who delivered us from so great a peril will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope and he will yet deliver us. So in verse 10 we see that since Paul trusted in God, God delivered him from his trials. Once again, Paul turns back to the character of God. Lamentations chapter 3 verse 22 says, The Lord's loving kindness will never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. See, Paul set his hope on the continually, never-ending, never-changing character of God, who is good and who is faithful and abounding in love and mercy. And who always deliver us in our trials. See, God will protect us and deliver us through the trials of our life. Now, this comes in different forms. We know that for Paul and even Peter, they were imprisoned at certain times. And God divinely delivered them out of prison. Yet we know for other people that wasn't the case. For Stephen, he was was led to being stoned to death. And Stephen's deliverance looked a little different. For Stephen... While he was going through the stoning, he saw a stairway into heaven, and he saw the gates of heaven opened up to him. 
That was Stephen's deliverance from his trials. So there are different forms of deliverance. And one form is even being raised from the dead. I don't know if you guys have seen this book. There's a book out. It's called 90 Minutes in Heaven. And I read it. Sue and I read this book. It's about a pastor named Don Piper who was driving in Texas home from a conference. And he was driving home from a conference and he got into a head-on collision with a truck and died on the spot. And they believe he was dead for around 90 minutes. And then another pastor at the conference came up to him, saw him there, didn't know who it was, and prayed for him. Prayed for this man he didn't even know to restore his life. And God brought him back. The whole book is about his amazing story about how God brought him back to earth. Though he suffered many trials back in life, God rose him from the dead. So God has the power to raise us from the dead, as we know he did with Lazarus. Paul was delivered not only because of his faith, but because of the prayers of the saints in Corinth. Look at verse 11. And Paul was not ashamed, really, to ask for prayer support. We see that he does this repeatedly in his epistles. We see he does it in Romans, in Ephesians, in Philippians, and First and Second Thessalonians. He asks for prayer support. And he knows that the prayers of an effective people will accomplish much. And verse 11 says this, it says, You also joining in helping us through your prayers, so that thanks may be given by many persons on your behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. So Paul, like James, knew that the prayer of a righteous man will accomplish much, and that the prayers of many saints will probably even accomplish even more. And that's why we're really striving to be a praying church. And that book at the back that Chris talked about, Fresh Wind and Fresh Fire, is about a church that was desperate and cried out for God. They were a church probably only about 20 people. And they were desperately cried out for God. And they bloomed what is now known as the Brooklyn Tabernacle. They cried out to God in prayer. And so we know that the prayers of many, the righteous people, will accomplish much. And we seek God to be a praying church. So God received from this deliverance and these prayers. What did God receive? He received all the glory. We see that Paul puts all the glory back on God. He boasts and brags about God, the God of all comfort. And he glorifies God through all these trials. So how does this apply to your life? How does this flesh out in your life? When you're going through trials in your life, do you glorify God? That's a tough question to do. When, when you're on the outside, it may seem easy, but when you're in the trial, that's a hard thing to do. Do you have the heart like Job did? Job said that though he slay me, I'll trust in him. We know that Job went through man, many trials and suffering. Yet he said, though he slay me, I'll trust in him. That he pointed back to God's character to glorify God through his trials. So how have you experienced God's comfort in your life? How, how does God comfort you? Maybe it's time in his word, quiet time in his word. Maybe it's time in prayer when you're just crying out to God. Maybe it's just by the power of the Spirit that God comes along with his Holy Spirit and buoys you up. Or maybe it's being around other believers. I know that's true for Sue and I that after we found out about Chad Harkis about a month ago, about his 
losing his life, that we desperately wanted to be around other believers. We heard about it on Wednesday, and we just couldn't wait till we could get together with you guys to pray with you guys and to be comforted so that we could mourn together, so we could grieve together, so we could suffer together. But that so most importantly, we could be comforted and we could encourage one another. That was a great time of prayer about a month ago. Now finally, we have talked about the source of comfort being God. We've talked about when comfort comes. The comfort comes during trials. Now I want to talk about really the result of God's comforting you. And now that you've gotten through some trials, what now are you to do with this? How are you to respond? Believer, how are you to respond once you've been comforted, once you've been through trials, when you've experienced God's comfort in your life? Now what are you to do? Let's look back at verse 4. Verse 4 says that the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction... Why does he do this? The later half of the verse says, it says the reason why. So that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. So we are to comfort others in any affliction. That means anytime you've experienced the comfort of God, anytime you've been strengthened or buoyed up by God, You're not just supposed to leave that alone and just take it in for yourself. What are you supposed to do with that? You're supposed to pass that along. And so that someone is in any afflict, doesn't have to be the same struggle or trial, but if they're in any trial in their life, you're to come alongside others and provide that comfort to them. You know, in the days following the loss of our our daughter, Summer McKenzie, these verses in 2 Corinthians were pointed out to us. And for the days and the months and the years that follow, we experience God's comfort during times of immense pain and grief. And little did we know that three years later that another couple in our body would experience almost a similar thing, a loss of their child. And that was Tim and Leslie Glessman. And so we were able to come alongside them with the comfort that God had given us and give it to them. And then now we know since that time, Tim and Leslie have gone and they have a grief share ministry where they have comforted and came alongside many other people. So we're to give it away. There's a motto out there called Pay It Forward. And you may have seen the movie or read the book Pay It Forward. And really it's all about giving back to others. And in a worldly sense, Pay It Forward means random acts of human kindness. Now, we know in and of ourselves that's not going to really go anywhere. But the one who really started that whole theme, that whole motto, was Christ. Christ started that whole thing. This whole verses here are really, what's it all about? It's when you've been comforted that you would give that on to others. Let's look on in verse 5 through 7. Verse 5 says, For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. But if we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. Or if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which is effective in the patient enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. And our hope for you is firmly grounded, knowing that as you are sharers of our sufferings, so also you are sharers of our comfort. I know many people have kind of bought into this prosperity gospel. 
you see this on TV all the time of people preaching to people that, hey, come to know Jesus and your life will be great. You'll have tons of money. No more trials, no more suffering in your life. Just come to Jesus and everything's going to be fine. And then for those people, when they find out that's not true, ooh, that's hard. First Peter, he puts it this way in chapter 4. He says, my dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you are suffering. So I'm sure those people that bought into that prosperity gospel are shocked. They're probably surprised by the painful suffering they're going through. But Peter says, don't be surprised at this painful trial you're suffering. As though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice that you participate in the suffering of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, well, you're blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. And if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed, but praise God that you bear his name. So the suffering that Paul's referring to here in verse 5 is not really that suffering that Christ endured on the cross, because that was the suffering of taking the sins of the world upon himself and bearing the wrath of God upon himself. The suffering that Paul's referring to is the suffering of persecution. That if you claim to be a follower of Christ, you will be persecuted. So we shouldn't be surprised, beloved, when ABC has to retract a statement that there is a lack of atheists in hurricane zones. We shouldn't be surprised when the ACLU and the atheists try to remove all religious objects from public places. We shouldn't be surprised when Windsor High School issues you a letter requesting you to retract your decision to have a swim banquet at a church and move it to the school cafeteria because it would be viewed as proselytizing and you could lose your job. Beloved, be prepared to suffer in Christ's name, but be also prepared to be comforted, to be blessed. For in the same amount you suffer, you will be comforted. And God does not comfort the comfortable. So if you're in a stage in life where things are comfortable and worry-free, there's really no need for God's comfort. Comfort really only comes when the times when you most need it. Paul talks about in chapter 4 of 2 Corinthians, there's really a complementary design that when we go through trials, when we go through suffering, when we go through persecution, that he brings alongside comfort and rejoice and joy. And in chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he says, We are hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. I mean, how would we know the true warmth of a nice down comforter on a cold, snowy day if we hadn't been out in the freezing rain or cold, maybe at work or skiing or something? How would we not know the satisfaction of a nice, cool rain or a dip in a lake if we hadn't been out working in the sun, maybe landscaping or, God forbid, running a marathon how would we not know that coolness if we wouldn't have been out in that hot, blazing sun? See, there's a complementariness to 
going through trials that God brings upon us. When we go through trials and suffering, he brings upon us an amazing gift and strength of comfort. Well, in conclusion, we know now that the source of our comfort really comes from God and that he provides it at really the exact right time and the exact right amount to get us through hard times. And we know that God will never tempt us beyond what we can bear. He will never test us beyond what we can bear. He knows our limits. And he wants us to trust in him throughout the trial. Though it not make sense at the time, God will reveal it to us. I know for us, losing our daughter was a difficult trial. One we did not think we could bear. We were just brand new Christians. We are in our early 30s. But we trusted in God and we didn't lean on our own understanding. And over time, we got to see the mighty hand of God work in our lives through that trial. We had many opportunities to share Christ when we hadn't before. And I know talking to Tom Harkis after the loss of their son, they've had opportunities to share with other people that they never would have had before. So God brings comfort and he offers peace through times of trial. And I know there's many saints in this body that have gone through tough and difficult times. Yet they have glorified God through those times. They've trusted in Him. So if you are here today and you're going through a difficult time or a test or a trial in your life, come to us. Let, let us know about it. You can jot it down on the prayer request cards and put it in the back or I'll be here after the service and come and talk to us because you're missing out on God's best for you. If you're just going to try to do it on your own, come to us and let us know about it so we can pray for you, so we can come around you and we can show you the God of all comfort and comfort one another and be there alongside one another. That's really what God wants us to do. He wants us to encourage and love and pray for one another. And if you just hold it back to yourself and don't let anyone know about it, then you're not going to see God's best. Paul informed the church in Corinth of every detail of his suffering. So let us know. If you're going through a tough time, please let us know about it. Don't keep that to yourself. We're going to transition into a time of communion. And this is a time to remember really what Christ did for us on the cross. That he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. So if you're here today and you don't know Christ, he's calling you to come. He's calling you to come and and put down all your burdens Put down all your sins, put down all your troubles at the foot of the cross. And it says in 1 John that if you confess your sins, that He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It also says in 1 Corinthians that when we come to the table, that we are not to come in an unworthy manner. And so He's referring to us, believers, followers in Christ. And that doesn't mean that. We are unworthy in ourselves because Christ has made us worthy. By what he did for us on the cross, he has stamped our sins paid in full and he has made us worthy. But what this really means is in an unworthy manner, it means if you have an offense against a brother and sister in Christ, maybe your wife or husband, maybe your kids, someone there, if you've offended them in any way, before you come to the table, make it right. Make it right with them. And search your heart. If anyone has offended you and you haven't forgiven them for that offense, you need to forgive them in your heart and make it right between you and God too. 
That's the most important part is that we make it right between us and our brothers and sisters and that we make it right between us and God. And God knows you're weak. He knows the struggles you've gone through. And this is a time I want you to spend to do business with God and to make it right with God so that you can come to the table in a worthy manner. You can be right with Him and that your slate will be wiped clean because He he promises it. He will cleanse you of all unrighteousness. So do you want to be cleansed? Because He will cleanse you.